So we are in a sermon series called One. It's the last Sunday in this sermon series for 25 weeks. We've been studying together through the book of Acts, talking about the one God who establishes for himself one church. He gives that church one mission, and he invites us to make his one mission the one focus of each and every one of our lives. And for the past number of weeks, it's been about eight weeks now, we've been looking especially at the end of the book of Acts of the life of one individual, a man named Paul, who exemplified what it meant to live with focus. And part of the reason Paul had so much focus is because Paul had met in person, face-to-face, the resurrected Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. If you knew somebody had died and three days later came back to life, and then you talked to them face-to-face, I bet you would remember that encounter as well. And sure enough, Jesus gave Paul a clear purpose for his life. Jesus said to Paul, Paul, you will be my instrument to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles and the kings of the Gentiles and to all the people of Israel. So that's exactly what Paul did. Well, we come now to the end of the book of Acts, which is also coming pretty close to the end of the life of Paul. And here's what we need to do together this morning. First of all, we're going to wrap up the sermon series on the book of Acts. However, second, like we've already said, today is Palm Sunday, the day we remember Jesus's uh, entry into Jerusalem just days before the end of his life. So I'm also going to try to connect the end of Paul's life with the beginning of the end of Jesus's life. And then, of course, In the midst of that all, I also want you and I to reflect on how we can live our lives with focus, just like Jesus and Paul lived theirs. And the way I'm going to try to do that is by starting out with a question. It's the question that I'm going to try to tie as a thread throughout this whole sermon together. And here's the question. I want you to take a second and think about this for yourself pretty seriously. Are you successful? If you look at your life, if you look at your family, if you look at your career, if you look at your physical or emotional health, if you look at your life at, you know, sort of writ large, would you say that you are successful? It's a challenging question, but I think it's a question that most of us, if we're honest, would say that we have at some time or in some way thought about. But it's also a bit of a trick question, because if we're going to answer that question, there's another question behind it that we have to answer first, because as you know, there's almost always a question behind the question. That other question we have to answer first is, how do you define success? See, if we don't know our definition of a success, if we don't first have it well-defined, we'll never be able to answer whether or not we are successful. And here's the reason that's such a challenging question. We live in a world that is consumed with the idea of success. We live lives where every day there is a barrage. We are bombarded with images and messages defining for us what success means. Successful people are put up on pedestals. Their stories are told more broadly. Their lives are looked at and picked apart and evaluated and celebrated more highly. So before we get to our definition of success, let's consider some of 
the possible definitions of success that I bet you see in the world around you. First, there's money. Bill Gates often comes to mind over a hundred billion dollars net worth. Second, you could think of career success. I was reading an article just last week about a doctor, a medical researcher named Ravindra Gupta. He does cancer research and he's already had some groundbreaking cures for some forms of cancer and he has claimed that he thinks he can cure all cancer by the end of his life. Oh my goodness. That's a high bar for career success. Or there's achievement and influence. Many people are rightly making a big deal out of our current vice president, the first female and the first person of color in that high office in our government. And then, of course, we live in a world where media, and particularly social media, is paid so much attention to. And so success can be defined by how many followers you have on your platform. There's the brand new, it's not that new, there's one of the newest platforms called TikTok. And over a hundred million people follow a young woman named Charlie D'Angelo. I bet many of you had never heard of Charlie D'Angelo, but for pretty much everybody under the age of 20, she's a big deal. And then of course, There's the single most followed person across any social media platform. He's on Instagram, and it's the Spanish footballer, Cristiano Ronaldo. So fortunately, football wins the day on social media. And of course, this is the true and original football, not what we Americans refer to as football. Ronaldo has 261 million followers on his Instagram page. Which, if you're like me, and we reflect on the wealth of Bill Gates, or the career of Gupta, or the followers on Instagram, we look at our own lives. We look at our own net worth. We look at our own social media platforms, and we can be tempted. I mean, be honest. I know I've been tempted. I bet you've been tempted. We can be tempted to compare ourselves with these people and say, I must not be successful. But the reason we do that is because of a certain definition of success, a definition that I hope this morning to confront and challenge and hopefully work to dismantle in our lives. Because I think it's great that these people are successful in those ways, but I don't think Their lives are successful in the way that we, as Jesus followers, should define success. Which brings us back to the man whose life we've been following, the Apostle Paul. And as we've been following his life, we've come now to the end of the story. We're coming to the end of the book of Acts. And as we get to the end, I want us to look at Paul and consider for a second, was Paul successful? I mean, was he successful? Certainly, the mere fact that we, along with tens or hundreds of millions of people around the world, continue to read his story every single year, that in and of itself says something. However, the circumstances at the end of his life can be a bit challenging depending on our definition of success. So if you would, turn with me now to the very last passage in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28 
verses 17 through 30. And let me briefly remind you of where we've been so far. So Paul was called by Jesus to proclaim the good news. And therefore, Paul traveled throughout the Roman Empire. It was a multi-million dollar missionary endeavor spanning many, many years where he planted many churches. He then wrote letters instructing and encouraging and supporting those churches He gathered funds all along to bring back to the poor in Jerusalem who are suffering from a famine. And he did that all because he believed that's what God had called him to do. Well, in the midst of that all, he felt God calling him to go back to Jerusalem one more time and continue to preach there. But so many of his friends said, Paul, Paul, come on, man. Not a good idea. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get killed. But Paul wasn't interested in whether or not he lived. He was interested in whether or not he did what God called him to do. So Paul went to Jerusalem. And sure enough, not surprisingly, some rumors, some lies were spread about him. A riot started. And Paul found himself imprisoned. Tried before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Tried before the Roman court in Caesarea. Tried before the king of the region, and eventually Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. None of you have uh, pronounced me innocent, even though I am innocent. I appeal to Caesar himself. And Paul could do that because that was his right as a Roman citizen. So Paul got on a ship, and if you were here last week, uh, you heard he went on one of the most Just terrifying sea journeys you could possibly imagine. If you didn't hear last Sunday's sermon uh, from one of our preaching team members, John Harden, please go back on the YouTube feed and listen to it. It was fantastic. Paul found himself shipwrecked, almost dead, on a small island in the Mediterranean Sea. And even there, at one of the most, you know, uh, scary moments of his life, what does Paul do? He continues to preach as he always does because he believes that God is with him in the midst of any storm life sends his way. And so sure enough, Paul eventually makes it to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. He's put under house arrest where, as we'll read, for almost two years he sits in prison waiting for Caesar to try his case. And you know what Paul does when he's in house arrest in Rome? He continues to do what he's always done. He reaches out to all of the Jewish leaders around Rome and he says, I'd love to talk to you about the way of Jesus Christ. And sure enough, the Jewish leaders are interested and that's where we pick up today's story in Acts chapter 28. Paul reaches out to the Jewish leaders and here is their response. We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Now, the sect that they're talking about is what we today would call Christianity. But in the first century, Christianity was understood first as one of the many different sects of Judaism. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and then you had the Jesus followers. It was one of many. And apparently Paul had won some level of fame because even the leaders in faraway Rome had heard about Paul and wanted to hear more. So Paul has one of his favorite things, a captive audience. 
And Paul doesn't pass up that advantage. He goes ahead and continues the conversation. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. So we see yet again exactly what Paul experiences all the time. He gathers people together, and a big crowd, bigger than anticipated, comes and wants to hear him. But sure enough, like so often, Paul passionately shares his commitment in his life to follow Christ, and he tries to persuade others that following Christ is, in fact, so good. It's a free gift from God. But whereas some believe and decide to follow Jesus, others do not believe. It's a pattern we see. Even Jesus himself, some followed him, some rejected him. Jesus' disciples, some followed Jesus, some rejected Jesus based on the testimony of disciples. I bet you might have experienced this in your life as well. You try to talk about the way that God gives you strength and hope and forgiveness for life. And some people are interested and want to hear more. And some people are offended and push you away. But Paul isn't interested in whether he wins the approval of others or not. Rather, he's interested in proclaiming the message that God has given him proclaim. So we come finally to the very last couple verses in the book of Acts. And here's how Paul's biographer, Luke, decides to end this whole story. For two whole years... Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This last, this closing couple sentences of the book of Acts, I find to be a really interesting way to end the book. Because remember, we've asked ourselves, was Paul successful? As Paul comes to the end of his life, was he successful? And here's what stands out to me about the way that Luke chooses to wrap up the story. Luke chooses to wrap it up on a very high note. I mean, you can hear the excitement in Luke's voice when he writes, Paul taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You can hear the triumphal music rising in the background. And yet, while Luke casts a tone of success over the end of the story, we as readers can't help but feel a little tension with Paul's circumstances. Remember, he was almost killed multiple times. He sat stuck in prison for two years in Caesarea. He's sitting now again, we just read, for two more years in prison in Rome. Sure, it's house arrest. It's probably better than some form of prisons could be, but he's still in prison. He's still considered, uh, you know, he has not been proven innocent. And in fact, we know that Paul will continue to sit in prison for at least another three, if not five more years. Some ancient sources suggest he may have been released briefly and then got back in prison. But we also know that however long, Paul eventually is executed 
in Rome. Like his master Jesus before him, wrongly executed for crimes he didn't commit, but rather for false things that were said against him. And so we're stuck in this tension. The circumstances at Paul's life do not match our typical definitions of success. And yet, Luke ends the story with this tone of victory, saying, suggesting that Paul actually was incredibly successful. What do we make of that? Well, we go back to the same question we went to at the beginning. We remember Paul as a man who was clearly successful, but we ask, what was his definition of success? And that's where we turn to this Sunday's text, Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem when he was welcomed as king. See, because before we say what Paul's definition of success was, I first want to say what I am quite certain where Paul got his definition of success from. And there's only one place Paul could have possibly got his definition of success from. His Lord, his Savior, his God, Jesus, a man who died and came back to life. Let's read a little more now about the story of Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt. He rode in and the crowds laid palm branches at at his feet. They spread their cloaks before him. They shouted Hosanna. They gave him the welcome deserving of a king. It was a high moment of celebration. And yet, Jesus wasn't riding on some mighty stallion, the ride of a horse, rather, or the ride of a king. Rather, he was riding on a lowly colt. And as we're going to read in the text, Jesus wasn't soaking in the celebration of the people, but rather, Jesus was weeping and suffering in sorrow. Here's where the story of Palm Sunday picks up as Jesus is riding on the colt. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why is it such contrast built into this story? Why is it that the crowd is celebrated and cheering, but Jesus is sorrowful and weeping? Well, the reason for Jesus is twofold. First of all, because Jesus knows that for every person celebrating his presence and welcoming him as king, there's also many others who have rejected him. And Jesus came to earth to give a free gift of love and life for all people. And so every person that rejects him is a sorrow for Jesus 
Because the rejection is not of him, but it's a rejection of God's own self. Second, Jesus is sorrowful because he knows that the crowd and their celebration is a little bit confused. See, the crowd at this point still thinks that Jesus is going to rise up an army, overthrow the evil Roman Empire, and sit himself on the throne of Rome, reestablishing Jerusalem as a political and a military authority in the region. The crowd is probably celebrating because they don't understand what Jesus is about. It turns out Jesus actually spent a lot of time trying to help his disciples understand what the end of his life would actually be about. See, Jesus, as he's riding in on the colt, knows that this isn't the beginning of an earthly victory, but rather this is the beginning of his death and the end of his life. This is the beginning of a terrible suffering. And This is where we get our understanding of how Jesus defined success. He didn't define success by achieving political office. He didn't define success by getting a a giant amount of followers, assuming getting followers was all about him. He didn't define success by, you know, overthrowing the Roman Empire. Rather, he defined success based on what God had called him to. To do. And Jesus spent a long time trying to get his disciples ready so they would understand what he saw his life to be about. We get glimpses of it all throughout Jesus' teaching, but one of the most significant in my mind comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is talking to his disciples about this very idea of success, and he says, Disciples, you guys know what? You look around and you see that the moment people here on earth get any little bit of power or authority. Do you know what people do with power and authority? They use it to lord over people. They use their power over people to control people, to coerce people, to put themselves above and ahead of and in front of other people. But Jesus contrasts that earthly use of power, that earthly definition of success with his own definition. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's my first answer to the question of how we define success. I think Jesus defined success in this way. He defined success not by what he achieved or what he accomplished or what power or authority he gained, but rather he defined success by whether or not he gave his life for others. Jesus defined success by how much he was able to serve others. As we look at the world around us, as we consider the messages of success we see every day, let me ask you this. What would your life look like? What would have to change? What would have to be true? What would your life look like if these words of Jesus became your and my 
definition of success. What would it be like if this is what we desired more than anything else in our lives? I know for many of us, we would say and we think, and there's part of us that wants this to be true already, but the reminder is simply to say, God, what would it be like for my whole life, for my one focus, for every ounce of my being to be centered on this one thing, taking what you've designed me to be and living not for my own benefit primarily, but for the benefit of others. Well, I can tell you one example of what it would look like to live life that way. It would look like the life of the Apostle Paul, who, in defining his own definition of success, stated it this way. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Here's what we know about Paul and Jesus. We know that in their lives, there were examples of success. There were temptations to look for power and wealth and fame and prestige. There were definitions of success in their world exactly the same as we have definitions of success competing for our attention in our world. But both of them showed us a different and a better way to live. I mean, one of the things that the Christian church has always believed about Jesus is that, yes, he was fully God. God himself in human form, fully God in every way, shape, and form, but also Jesus was fully human. He felt all the emotions we feel as humans. He had all the same temptations and desires we have as humans. Jesus knew what it was riding on that donkey in Jerusalem. He knew what it was to be tempted by the fame put before him. How do you define success? How do I define success? I wrestled with really the right phrasing to come up with to kind of wrap it up. I mean, there's a lot of ways we could say it. There's a lot of ways we could summarize it. But here's what I want to suggest. Like we've been saying all along, God made every one of us. And he designed us with some gifts and some abilities, some resources and talents we've got. And he designed us with some passions, some desires, some hopes, and some dreams. God designed us and gave us those things for a purpose. So here's how I define success. Not the power we achieve, not the wealth or the fame or the influence, not the money. Success is doing what God designed you to do with your life. First, he definitely designed all of us to do what he himself has already done, serve others. Give our lives for the good of others. And how do we do that? We do that by figuring out what gifts we've got and using them in the best way. We can do that in the home. We can do that in the workplace. We can do that on our hobbies. We can do that through our churches. We can do that literally every day, everywhere we go. And it's going to look different for each and every one of us. But also, it means each and every one of us is going to look a little more and more 
like Christ each day. Or I could say it this way. Success, in accordance with what we've been talking about in this sermon series, success is living with focus. Pushing aside the temptations and the distractions and the deceitful definitions of success from the world around us and instead focusing on what God has invited us to do with our lives. Which brings us, as always, to the most challenging time when we stop talking about Paul and we stop talking about Scripture and we start asking, what's your move going to be? And I want to invite you to consider two responses. First of all, as we've been asking this question, what am I designed to do? What's my calling or my purpose? What should the focus of my life be? I've gotten a lot of good feedback that this is a challenging and a provocative question for a lot of people, but many of us are really saying, how do I continue to find and clarify that focus? So as one more, you know, sort of small attempt to help towards that end, I created one more resource. I'm calling it a finding focus journal. Here's what I did. I took many of the response activities I've suggested the past six or eight weeks, and I put them together into a single 10-day journal. You might actually take a little longer than 10 days, but there's sort of 10 pieces of content and activity. There's some prayer, there's some scripture study, there's some personality inventories, there's some little tools you can use, but if you still feel like you're trying to find God's focus for you in your life, I offer this. If you come to worship with us on Good Friday or Easter, we'll have physical copies in the building. It's also linked on the Bible app and this week's All Church email and, of course, on the website at This Week at CCC. But here's the second response activity I want to challenge you to consider doing this week. A response activity that I think can help us clarify how we're defining success in our lives. Here's what I'd love you to do. Think over your next week. And find about a 30-minute chunk of time that you can carve out to have a quiet space for reflection and for some prayer. Some of you might want to do that in the morning before the kids wake up or in the evening after the kids are in bed or maybe in the middle of your work day where you just need to take a break. But either way, find about 30 minutes of time when you can have some quiet and focus. I did this. A coach of mine, a mentor of mine, introduced me to this activity a while ago, and I was surprised by how clarifying it was. And so I'm suggesting it to you because I did it myself, even though it really is a little bit of a strange activity. Here's the activity. You get this quiet space, and I want you to try and write your own eulogy. Here's what I mean. Think about your own funeral. It's a strange, it's a weird thing. And imagine that you are present, standing at your own funeral. You're standing in the back of the room as people walk in, take their seats. There's a slideshow. There's some music. A pastor stands up and prays. And then eventually, if you've ever been to a funeral or a memorial service or a celebration of life, eventually what will happen, somebody who knows you really, really, really well is going to walk up and is going to share a eulogy, which literally just means a good word. They're going to talk about the good things of your life, celebrate the joyful memories, share how they remember you. So imagine you're in that place. Strange though imagining that would be. Imagine you're in that place. And then, 
as you think about your funeral, answer this question. What do you want people to say about you? How do you hope people will speak about you? How do you hope to be remembered? If you were to stand up and give your own eulogy, and if you were to be truly honest, what would you hope that you could say was true about how you lived your life? Here's the thing about this bizarre little activity. Thinking about the way we would like to be remembered at the end of our lives clarifies the way God is calling us to live right now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we go into a couple final songs. But here's my real hope. We live in a world bombarding us with different and competing definitions of success. Those definitions are often very tempting and maybe in some small way okay, but we don't want to look to the world around us to define success. We want to look to one and only one place and one place only. Our God who made us with a purpose and who has gifted us with a purpose and who came to earth and showed us what it meant to live a life and gave us a definition so that each and every one of us can know with confidence, regardless of what the world around us says, we can know with confidence when we wonder, am I successful I'd love every one of us to be able to say, because of God's grace at work in me, yes. Yes, I am. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that often we're too hard on ourselves. We don't trust in your grace. We don't look to you for guidance in our lives. Help us today, Lord. As we go into Holy Week and as we remember the end of your life on earth, earth, help us, Lord, to measure our lives, not based on the success defined by the world around us, but rather based on the work you, our God, have given us, for which you've gifted us and are strengthening us each and every day. We pray. As always, in your name, Jesus. Amen.